morning? Everybody doing okay? Awesome. Well, hey, if you have a Bible or some kind of device with a Bible app, grab it, and let's go to Mark chapter 12 together. Mark chapter 12. Uh, many of you probably know this, but in recent years, there have been a lot of books written and even movies made about people having near-death experiences and then claiming to get a taste of life after death. You guys have seen these, right? 90 Minutes of Heaven, Heaven's for Real, the list goes on and on. Well, while these books and movies have stirred up some important conversations about eternity, uh, personally, I believe they've also created a lot of confusion and even cynicism regarding what happens when we die. That, by the way, is why you shouldn't ever base your theology of eternity on books like those. Uh, you should base your theology of eternity on one book. Right, this one book teaches us all we need to know about what happens concerning life after death. Uh, yet I've still often found that a lot of people who think they know what the Bible teaches about eternity are still very, very confused in ways. And so my goal today is to help clear up that confusion. Now, I've got to be really honest with you. It's going to take a lot of work to get there. Uh, this passage that we're diving off into is not a passage that I would just normally pick to preach, okay? It's really hard. There are some weird things in here we're going to need to work through together. Uh, but this is the beauty of preaching through books of the Bible. When we come to this kind of stuff, we just have to deal with it, okay? And so we're going to need to work together. You're going to need to stay just in the conversation, yes. And hopefully by the end, it'll all make sense. So if your Bibles are open, Mark 12, let's pick up in verse 18. Mark says, and Sadducees came to Jesus who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question saying, teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And here's the question they want to know. Jesus, in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. You see what I mean when I say there's some weird stuff in here? All right, we're going to need to work through it. Before we start working through it, let me just reset the context for us if I can, okay? Uh, three weeks ago, we finally came into the third and final major section of the book of Mark. We made it to Mark chapter 11, and in this chapter, Jesus finally enters the city of Jerusalem where he performs his last week of earthly ministry. Well, upon entering the city, he has major run-ins with the religious leaders of his day, and, and these run-ins leave them wanting to arrest him and destroy him, yet they take no action because they're really scared of the people who are following Jesus. And so they devise this new strategy. They decide that they're going to send some other groups to question and challenge Jesus, in hopes of catching him, saying some really unbiblical, really blasphemous things that they can then turn and use to get rid of him, all right? And so last week in our text, we saw the first two groups approaching Jesus. They were the Pharisees and the Herodians. In our text today, we see a third group coming to challenge Jesus. This is a group that Mark calls the Sadducees. This is the only time this group appears in the book of Mark, and there are a couple things I want you to know about them, all right? Uh, number one, the Sadducees were priestly aristocrats, and I know that means nothing to you, so let me tell you what it means, all right? It means, number one, they came from a line of priests. Many Bible scholars believe that they came from the line of a priest named Zadok. He was the high priest at the time of King David, some 1,000 years before Jesus ever showed up on the earth. 
When you translate Zadok's name out of the Hebrew into the Greek, his name becomes Saduk. It's where we get the name Sadducees, all right? So this group was often associated with the priesthood and the temple. The second thing, though, is you need to know they didn't just come from a line of priests. They came from a line of very wealthy, upper-class priests. So even though the Sadducees were a small group in comparison to other groups like the Pharisees, during the time of Jesus, they held a lot of religious and political clout and power, okay? The final thing to know about this group, and the most important thing, is what Mark tells us in verse 18. The Sadducees said that there was no resurrection. And so in other words, they denied this very common belief held by most Jews during the time of Jesus... Uh, They denied the foundational belief that Christianity today is built upon, and it's the belief, don't miss this, that one day in the future, our God will recreate his world, including our physical bodies, the physical bodies of every person that has ever lived, and those people who believed in Christ and trusted in Christ, they will be raised to brand new life and brand new resurrected bodies and experience eternal life with him. But those who rejected Christ, they will also be resurrected to brand new bodies, but not to life, instead to judgment. And again, if you're listening and going, what in the world are you talking about, James? Um, Don't worry, later in the message, we're going to get into the depths of that. But for now, let me keep us on the Sadducees, okay? The reason the Sadducees rejected the idea, the concept of resurrection was because as a group, they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. Uh, the Torah, the book of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy. They said that, that those five books and those five books alone were inspired authoritative words from God. And so even though there are places in the Old Testament that speak of resurrection, Daniel 12, Isaiah 26, Ezekiel 37, the Sadducees said that doesn't matter because the whole Old Testament is not the word of God, it's these five books. And according to them, there was no evidence of resurrection in those five books And so they denied it completely as a false and even dangerous idea. And so what we see in the text is this group coming to Jesus to ask him about this concept that they deem as false and unbiblical. And they take a really creative approach in doing so. Uh, They come to Jesus and they raise the issue of what's known as leveret marriage. This was a law recorded by Moses in the Old Testament. If you want to read about it, you can find it in Deuteronomy chapter 25, But the law of leveret marriage says this, that if a man has a brother and his brother dies and leaves behind a childless widow, that the living brother has to marry his sister-in-law and provide for her a son. And that son would then take the name of the deceased brother. You guys tracking with me so far? Yes? I know to some of us you're going, that's crazy, dude. Like some of you are probably thinking, I don't want my brother anywhere near my wife. And, and then some of you are probably thinking, this is why I don't believe in the Bible, because there are weird things like that in there. Well, listen, I get it, but, but when you understand history and culture, the reason for a law like this begins to make a whole lot of sense, okay? This law was in effect, number one, to protect widows. You see, at the time of Moses, women couldn't own property, and they could not earn income. And so they were completely dependent upon husbands and sons for both provision and protection. And so this law ensured that widows were not left to uh, suffer and struggle in poverty throughout their entire lives. But it was also done for a second reason. The law was in place to preserve family lines. You see, if I was a man living during this time and I wanted to keep my property and my inheritance within my family, I needed an heir. 
And if I didn't have an heir, a son, to give my stuff to, well, all my property and my inheritance would go to someone else. And so this law gave childless widows the opportunity to produce heirs for their deceased husbands. And so with this law on the table, the Sadducees come and they create this hypothetical situation for Jesus. They say to him, hey, uh, here's what Moses wrote for us about what we should do if like guy's brother dies and childless widow. You know the whole thing, Jesus. Here's what we want to know. Um, There were seven brothers. It's interesting. They could have asked their question just using two brothers, but they went overboard and asked about seven, right? Seven brothers. The first brother took a wife and he died and left her with no kids. And so brother number two stepped up, did his duty, took her as his wife, died, left her with no kids. Third, same thing. All seven brothers, like same story. And then the woman died. Jesus, what we want to know is in the resurrection, when they all rise again, whose wife is she going to be? All seven guys had her as their wives. Now, we might wonder, at least I wonder, if these guys didn't believe in the resurrection, why are they here asking Jesus about it? You know, this is like the atheist who's always mad at God. You know what I'm saying? Like, bro, if you don't think he exists, why are you so mad at him all the time? Just let it go. Sadducees, if you don't believe in the resurrection, why are you talking to Jesus about the resurrection? Well, you have to understand, they weren't asking seriously. They were asking sarcastically. This was all a big joke to them. They denied this concept altogether, and so they're asking Jesus, come on, man, whose wife is she going to be? Do you not hear the ridiculousness of this, Jesus? Well, look at Jesus' answer, verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now, anytime I read stories like this in the scriptures, I always just try to put myself in the room to visualize what it was like. And I almost visualize Jesus laughing along at first. You know, ha, 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 great question. You guys are so clever. Did you think of that hypothetical situation on your own, huh? And then the, the, the switch flips and Jesus says, ha, ha, let me tell you why you're wrong. <laughs> you're wrong because you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God. Now, before we talk about how that was true for the Sadducees, I thought we'd slow down for a moment and talk about the dangers of you and I today not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. And so if you're taking notes, I want to give you a couple things to write down, all right? Um, First, not knowing the scriptures leads to heresy. Not knowing the scriptures leads to heresy. What is heresy? It's false teaching. If you fall into heresy, it means you are falling into things that are not true, that are not biblical, things that God never said. And when you fall into heresy, you do what the Sadducees did. You start to deny certain aspects of the word of God, and you even take certain biblical passages out of context to support your false beliefs. I'll give you an example, all right? Culture has done a great job of this in regards to Matthew 7, verse 1. Jesus is teaching there in the Sermon on the Mount, and he says, judge not, lest you be judged. And so cultures ran with that. They've taken those words from Jesus, and they've used it out of context to support what is now known as the new tolerance. 
It's this idea that as people, we have no right to call sin, sin. We have no right to call truth, truth. Like we're supposed to sit back and just applaud anything and everything people want to do, regardless of of what choices they make. And again, culture says the reason you do that is because Jesus said, don't judge. You don't have any right to judge me. Well, can I tell you, that's just false. That's not what Jesus was teaching there. Jesus was not teaching in Matthew 7 that we don't call sin, sin, and we don't call truth, truth. What he was teaching was this. um, Don't be a jerk when you do it. You see, Jesus called sin, sin, and truth, truth, didn't he? I mean, all throughout the Gospels, you find stories of Jesus walking into the lives of very broken, sinful people, and he heals them, delivers them, saves them, and then he says stuff like, hey, uh, go and sin no more. You know all that evil, wicked stuff you were doing in your old life? I've changed your life, so live differently from this point forward. Look, as the people of God, we have a great responsibility to call sin, sin, and to call truth, truth. But according to Jesus, we don't need to be judgmental while we're doing it. We don't treat people with unnecessary harshness and anger just because their sin looks different than ours. My friends, this is why it's so important for you to know the scriptures. I mean, I've told you this before, but but I'll mention it again. And if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. Anytime scripture is taken out of context, it becomes a con. Anytime scripture is taken out of context, it becomes a con. And if you are conned into believing things that are not true, you will make some really poor decisions. And over time, you will find yourself living life in the completely wrong direction. And so that's first. Not knowing the scriptures leads to heresy. But then secondly, not knowing God's power leads to hopelessness. Look, if you don't know the power of God, you will live your entire life as that defeated person. That person whose mindset is always, things are never gonna get better, things are never gonna turn around, things will never be different, this is my life. And maybe you walked in today feeling that kind of hopelessness, wrestling with that kind of defeat. You think about your marriage, or your kids, or your work, maybe your health, And that's the thought that's running through your mind right now. This will never change for me. If that's where you find yourself, I just want to say to you in love today, you either don't know or you have lost sight of the power of God. Because when you know the power of God, you know there's always hope even when things seem hopeless. And why? Because our God can do impossible things, amen? Things like performing resurrections, And this was Jesus' point to the Sadducees. He's going, hey, guys, if you knew the scriptures and you knew the power of God, you would understand how wrong you are about resurrection. And then Jesus goes on to make his case. He begins by speaking first to the power of God. And he starts here to correct their wrong thinking about resurrection. And maybe some of us who showed up today, we think like them. And so hopefully this will be helpful for you. But their question about marriage revealed that they thought of resurrection as nothing more than resuscitation. Like in their minds, resurrection meant, well, people just kind of come back into the same old life they previously lived. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not resurrection. Resurrection is not people just coming back into the same old life. Resurrection is about complete transformation. It's about the God of the universe in his power transforming creation, transforming your body, transforming your life completely, and giving you a life far different and far greater than you could ever imagine. That, my friends, is resurrection. Jesus then goes on to explain himself. And he says some crazy stuff. He goes, hey, uh, when people are resurrected in eternity, not if people, 
You with me? But when people are resurrected in eternity, they don't get married. So there's the answer to your question, Sadducees. But instead, God makes them like angels in heaven. Now, I need to slow down here and speak to this because I don't need you leaving confused, all right? Please hear me. Jesus is not saying here that when we die, we become angels. Not what he's teaching. And uh, if you're anything like me, like you've heard people say stuff to imply that. Um, People lose loved ones, they lose friends or family members, and they make comments at times like, God needed another angel in heaven. Or my my so-and-so finally got their wings. And please hear me, as your pastor, I am not trying to be insensitive in this moment at all. I'm not. I just love you, and I want you to know it's true, okay? That's not true. We do not become angels after we die. We, we don't. Jesus isn't teaching that. Jesus says we become like angels in that when we die and we know him and we go to eternity, we don't ever die again, which is pretty awesome, right? But then secondly, we become like angels in that we don't get married. Now, all you married people in the room, I don't know how that makes you feel right now. Hopefully, you're not too excited by that. Sweet. We'll finally be free. (laughs) If that's what you're thinking, we have some great marriage counselors we'd love to get you connected with. See us after the gathering. But, uh, But look, if you're anything like me, in all seriousness, that grieves you in a way, right? I mean, even this past week, as I was writing this message and and writing this portion of the message, I'm thinking about this and I'm struggling through it because it's really hard for me to imagine not being married to my wife. Like, I love Amber. She is the best part of me outside of Jesus, right? She's my best friend in the world. Like, I cannot imagine not having that kind of relationship with her. And so if you struggle with the same thought, uh, I want to give you something that I came across this past week to help with perspective, all right? There's this guy named Randy Alcorn. Dude, is brilliant. He's an author. He's a pastor, seminary professor. But he wrote this incredible book called Heaven. If you want to know what eternity is going to be like one day, go home, order that book Heaven on Amazon this afternoon and read it and just sit in awe. It's just beautiful. But, but he said this, and, and I loved it. Put this marriage and eternity thing in perspective for me. He said, there will be one marriage in heaven, not many. That marriage will be what earthly marriage symbolized and pointed to. The marriage of Christ to his bride. And so in essence and in reality, we'll all be married, but to Christ. And then he goes on and he says, our marriage to him is the true marriage of which the best of earthly marriages was a symbol and shadow. One day all heaven will attend the ultimate wedding and we will be his bride. How beautiful is this? Here's the idea. Like Alcorn is simply teaching here what the Bible teaches. That that even though human marriage will not exist in eternity, it won't matter. Because we're going to have something far greater and far more satisfying. And it's going to be our union with and our marriage to Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, everything we lived for and and longed for here on the earth as his people will finally be realized because we'll be with him. And so that, that desire for human marriage won't even exist in you any longer because Christ will have completely satisfied you. Now, that might raise another question in your mind. Well, James, will I not know my spouse? Or like, how does that work? No, I believe with all my heart because of what I see in the scriptures that in eternity, you'll still know the people you knew here on the earth. You're going to know your husband, you're going to know your wife, you're going to know your kids, you're going to know your friends and your loved ones. 
Um, I also believe, because of what I see in the scriptures, that your relationships with all those people will be far greater and far more intimate than they ever were here on the earth. Think about this. Your relationship with your spouse in eternity, even though it's going to look different, it's going to be better. Why? Because in eternity, all that sin and selfishness that exists in you and exists in them that often gets in the way of your relationship will be completely removed forever. Why? Because God in his great power will have completely transformed you. My friends, this is what we have to look forward to. This is the power of God at work. Amen? Come on. It's a beautiful truth. Now listen, after Jesus speaks to the power of God, he then goes on and he speaks to the scriptures. And I love this. He says to the Sadducees, uh, guys, have you never read from the book of Moses the story about the bush? He's making a reference here to this story in Exodus chapter 3 of Moses basically being called into ministry. You know, here's Moses, a shepherd at this point in his life, just out in the field minding his own business, and he sees this bush on fire, but it's not burning up. And so he does what we would all do. i got to go check that out. And as he approaches the bush, this voice comes from within the bush. And this is God speaking to Moses. Guys, have you read that story? And of course the Sadducees are going, of course we've read the story. I mean, Moses is our boy. And then Jesus says, well, if you've read the story, you should remember what God said. He said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He didn't say I was their God. He said, I am their God, which implies that even though those three men, the the fathers, the patriarchs of the nation of Israel, even though they had been dead and gone physically long before God spoke to Moses, they were still alive. And God was still in covenant relationship with those three men, and their relationship guaranteed their future resurrection. And so the point Jesus is making is really simple. He's going, hey, Sadducees, I know you love to claim that there's no evidence of the resurrection in the first five books of the Bible, the book of Moses, but I need you to know you're wrong. And the proof is right there in Exodus chapter 3. God himself claims to be not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Now, with the passage explained, I have to imagine at this point some of you are probably calling me a liar. Like you're thinking back to the beginning of the message and you're going, James, you said earlier that you were going to clear up my confusion about life after death. And I feel way more confused than I did just 20 minutes ago, right? So what's that all about? Well, look, if that's where you are, I want you to stay with me because for the rest of our time together, what I want to do is give you three resurrection principles that we see Jesus teaching and touching on in our passage And I really believe that these resurrection principles will resolve any confusion that might still exist in you, okay? So if you're taking notes, I want you to write some stuff down. The first principle Jesus teaches is this, that death is not the end of life. Uh, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because, again, this is pretty obvious from the passage. We've already been talking about this, uh, but I'll, I'll just touch on a couple things quickly, okay? Jesus wants us to know that when physical life ends, life doesn't end. Instead, there's this part of us. It's the most important part of us. It's what God in the Bible calls our soul. Uh, Our soul sets us apart from every other creature in existence. When we die, our soul goes on living. If you know Jesus Christ, at the moment you breathe your final breath here on the earth, your soul departs your body, and it immediately goes into the presence of God, right? This is what 2 Corinthians 5.8 teaches. To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. Beautiful news. 
death is not the end of life. Uh, the second principle is this, and this is where I want to spend more time, okay? Jesus also teaches us here that there is life after, life after death. Now, before you think I just jumped off into that heresy category I talked about earlier, I need you to stay with me, okay, as I explain this. Just write it down, and we'll unpack it. There is life after, life after death. Uh, I have found, as a guy who's grown up in church and been around people like us for a long time, that in the minds of many people, including many Christians, that there's a massive misconception about eternity. And the misconception goes something like this. Well, when I die, my soul leaves my body, and it goes to this place called heaven, and I live there like that for the rest of eternity. A lot of people think that's how it works. I die, and, and this soul part of me goes to this spiritual, non-physical place, and that's how I live forever. Can I just tell you, that is not true. That is not biblical. Nowhere does the Bible teach that when you die, your soul leaves, and you live as a soul in a non-physical place forever. It doesn't teach that. Instead, the Bible teaches what Jesus is pointing us to here in our passage, that's going to happen. Like, if you know Christ, when you die, your soul is going to leave your body and go into the presence of God immediately. But then there's coming a day when Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth for a second time. And when he returns, the God of the universe is going to recreate his world. And when he does this, your soul will be reunited with a brand new resurrected physical body. And you will live in that physical body with the resurrected Jesus in a physical place for the rest of eternity. Look at me. There's life after, life after death. And that life I'm talking about is this beautiful thing that Jesus calls the resurrection. Look, I want you to imagine this with me so that you get it, okay? So think about it. Think about a world much like the one we're living in right now, without sin. Without all the consequences of sin. So everything you hate about this world and this life, it's gone forever. There's no more violence. There's no more murder. No more wars. Uh, no sexism. No racism. No death. No disease. This is how the world works. And, and there you are in a brand new, glorious, heavenly body. A physical body. That doesn't feel pain, never suffers, never gets sick, never tastes death again. And Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is there with you. And he is ruling and reigning over that brand new world as king. Like no more presidents, no more politicians. It's just Jesus. Everybody's on his team. They love him. They're worshiping him, obeying him, following him. That, my friends, is the resurrection. That's what waits on us if we know Jesus and if you're still having a hard time comprehending how it all works, like just think about Jesus' death and resurrection for a moment, if you will. You see, Jesus died on a Friday. You with me so far? We're going to talk about that later in this series. Died on a Friday, put on a cross, crucified for the sins of the world. And when Jesus died, his soul left his body and immediately went in the presence of God. We know this from certain things Jesus said as he hung on the cross. Things like what he said to the thief dying next to him. There was this thief who had wasted his whole life. Like, if you think you're beyond the grace of God, give me a break. Come on, man. Here's a dude who wasted his whole life being violent, hurting people to take stuff. And he said, Jesus, here I am dying next to you. Would you forgive me? And Jesus didn't go, well, if you can get down off that cross and do better and work harder and prove you're the maybe. No, Jesus looked at this guy and he said, 
my friend, my brother, today, this very day, you will be with me in paradise. So what's the implication here? Well, one, Jesus loves to save really bad people. But number two, number two, that that very day, the soul of Jesus Christ was where? In paradise with the Father. And it stayed there until Sunday. On Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, Jesus' soul was reunited with a brand new, glorious, resurrected body. And Jesus Christ came bursting out of that tomb fully alive yet again. Listen to me. That's the kind of resurrection that weighs on us. That's what we're going to experience one day as his people. And that's why we have hope as the people of God. See, do you know that this place is not your home? That what you see in front of you, that, that there's more to life than what's there. God didn't create you to live here forever. He created you to live with him forever. And God has committed you to bringing you to a place where King Jesus will rule and reign over your life in a perfect way. That's why as the people of God, it doesn't really matter what we experience in this life. We always have something to look forward to. Our hope is not here It is there. One day, our resurrected Savior will come and get us his bride. And that's where we keep our eyes. That's where our hope is set. So there is life after life after death. The the final principle I want to touch on is this. And then we'll wrap our time up. Jesus says in the passage that rejecting resurrection is self-deception. That rejecting resurrection is self-deception. At the very end of verse 27, he says to the Sadducees, you're quite wrong. Hey, guys, if I haven't made myself clear just yet, let me be really clear. I just need you to know you're really wrong on this. When you translate that phrase out of the Greek into English, he's literally saying to them, you are deceiving yourselves by rejecting the resurrection. And can I tell you today the same is still true for us. Like if you deny life after death, if you deny the concept of resurrection on a theological level, you're in trouble because you're also denying the resurrection of Jesus. If resurrection is impossible, then that means Jesus didn't resurrect. And if Jesus didn't resurrect, we're all in big trouble, aren't we? I mean, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Instead of being here today, we should just be out there eating, drinking, partying, and waiting to die because there's no hope for us. On a practical level, if you deny life after death and the resurrection, it means that you are forced to believe. Please don't miss this. That you're forced to believe that this life is all you've got. And if this life is all you've got, you're going to live a hopeless life, a life of no meaning. You're going to reject Jesus and die stuck in your sin. And according to what Jesus says, whether you like it or not, one day you will be resurrected in a brand new body to eternal judgment. Can I just tell you, that's what the enemy wants you to believe. The devil wants you to believe that all you have is what's in front of you. That this life is all there, that this is as good as it ever gets for you. Jesus wants you to believe the truth. Jesus wants you to believe that that there is actually death after life. And then there's a whole other life after life after death called the resurrection. Jesus wants you to know as as his follower that this is as close to hell as you're ever going to get. Amen? That there's this place out there that God is preparing for you, this new world, this new heaven and new earth, and he's going to give you a new body, and you're going to live there with Jesus forever. And ultimately, Jesus wants you to believe that he is your resurrected Savior, the only one who can get you there. And so I just want to ask the question, have you believed that? Have you believed, is all your hope 
in Jesus? If your life were to end today, are you confident that your soul would leave your body and immediately go into the presence of the Lord? Listen, if not, in a moment, I want to help you be sure of that. But before I get there, let me just ask you, believer in Christ, who's thinking right now, oh, no, no, I put my faith in Jesus. I'm confident if my life ended today that I'd be with him. My question to you is this. Are you living in preparation for that moment when it comes? God burdened me a few years ago, um, just convicted me deeply, and, and really, I, I believe it was just supernatural revelation in a way, just peeled the blinders back for me and helped me to see something in the scriptures that I'd missed for a long time. Um, the fact that there's coming a day when I'm going to see Jesus. Like, I knew it, but I didn't know it. You tracking here? I knew it intellectually, but I didn't know it on a heart level. It had never um, hit me in a real practical way that there was coming a moment where I would stand face to face with my resurrected Savior. And God started burdening me, James, you need to live every moment of every day of your life for that moment. And it set my life on a new trajectory. And so I just want to ask you, are you living your life for that moment? Or are you living like this world is your home and this life you have right now is all you've got? My friends, I, I would encourage you, live every day um, for what waits on you. Treat this life for what it is. It's nothing more than a dress rehearsal for eternity. This life matters, but it's just preparation for what's to come. And so are you living that way? If not, I would encourage you as we begin to pray in just a moment, why don't you ask the Holy Spirit of God to give you a fresh perspective today so that you can live for what really matters. Will you pray with me? Let's just bow our heads all over the room. I'm gonna invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places. And as they come, if you are that person in the room, who's never put your faith and trust in Jesus. You've been living like this life in front of you is the only life you've got. You're that person who, when I asked that question a moment ago, if your life were to end today, what, what would happen? You don't know, and it scares you to death to even think about that. Look, if you're that person who knows that you need Jesus, a relationship with him, I, I wanna help you put your faith in him right now. And before I do, let me just say this quickly. This prayer that we're going to pray together, um, this is more than fire insurance, okay? I've heard it said before that heaven is not a place for people who are scared of hell. It is a place for people who love Jesus. And so I'm not trying today to scare you into making a decision. What I'm asking is, hey, if you see how much Jesus loves you, and you see the great lengths to which he's gone to save you out of sin, death, and hell forever. And you want to respond to the grace and love of God and have your life changed here and now and spend eternity with Jesus. Then put your faith in him. That's the invitation. And so if you want to do that right now, why don't you just say something in prayer like this to Jesus. Say, Jesus, I need you. I need you to be my resurrected Savior. Jesus, I, I believe that you love me. And I put my faith in your death on the cross for my sins. But Jesus, I also put my faith in your resurrection from the dead. I believe today that you conquered sin and, and death and hell for me. So that my life could be changed right now. 
and so that I could enjoy eternal life with you. And so, Jesus, would you just forgive me of all my sins? Take hold of my life. Put your Holy Spirit inside my body. And, Jesus, make me into the person you've created me to be. Jesus, I say yes to a relationship with you.